to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. I want to start off our talk today with just a few words from Jesus. So Jesus says, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. Now, I've been watching a lot of kids shows recently because I have children and they don't think that David Attenborough documentaries are as entertaining as I do. Um, but it's been interesting to see how quickly kids caught on to this old law, love your friend, hate your enemy. We had to stop watching the animated show Avatar with them, which if you haven't seen is pretty awesome. There are also numerous people in our church who would happily marathon the whole thing with you if you haven't experienced this element bending glory, um, such as the awesomeness of all 61 episodes of Avatar. But we had to stop watching it with our kids. Um, one, because it is probably still too old for them. They're not quite yet at the right stage of life. But two, because of how quickly they recognized who the bad guys were, aka the Fire Nation, if you haven't seen Avatar, and how gleefully our young children rejoiced anytime the bad guys were got. Get him! Yeah, get him! Was chorused throughout our living room as the boys jumped excitedly on the couch. The Lord of the Flies energy was real. And then the notion of bad guys entered their play and all manner of horrible punching and kicking and mistreating were justified by the assertion, but they're the bad guys. Love your friend, hate your enemy. It's okay, mama, because they're the bad guys and it's okay to hate our enemies. I don't want to besmirch Avatar. I'm not saying that our children wouldn't have stumbled across this idea if they had never seen Avatar. We were just watching Ice Age the other day, and it is rampant in Ice Age too. Um, honestly, it is just a pervasive subcontext and sometimes not so subtle context of our whole culture. The written law is love your friend, but its unwritten companion, hate your enemy, is everywhere. Can we talk about our enemies. Who's your bad guy? Who is it okay for you to hate? Can we talk about prejudice? Can we talk about racism? Can we talk about misogyny or all the phobics or those crazy liberals or those narrow-minded bigots? Can we talk about the oppressed, the marginalized, the rednecks, the elites? Can we talk about the foreigners? Can we talk about America? Can we talk about the blacks, the whites, the Asians, the Mexicans? Can we talk about those outdated boomers or those lazy millennials, the white collar, the blue collar, the haves, the have nots? Can we talk about the immigrants, the anti-vaxxers, the pro-choice, the pro-life, the judgmental, the stupid, the privileged? Love your friend, hate your enemy. That's the way, isn't it? And whoever your bad guy is, it's okay to punch and kick and mistreat and look down on and silence because they're the bad guy mama and it's okay to hate bad guys. You guys, I've been feeling really depressed about this. This is the world that we live in, this world of hate, a world of you can only love people who think the same things you think, who live just like you, and then everyone else has to be God. You guys, I'm tired. 
Is this all there is? Love your friend, hate your enemy? It's a world that's noxious, that's hard to breathe in, that produces suffering and hurt. We're breathing in pain and exhaling anger. And I don't know that all of our hate for the bad guys is making the bad guys go away like we thought it would. Is there another way? This whole series is based on the idea of terraforming, which is remaking a world that is inhospitable into something habitable. And if anything is inhospitable, it's this climate of hate. We've been going through these different areas that need to be reimagined, that need to be terraformed. And I think that this old unwritten law, love your friend, hate your enemy, is due for an update. Because the world it's producing is noxious and inhospitable. And I don't think that anybody likes it. How can we turn this world into something habitable? How can we terraform hate? Now, shockingly, Jesus has a great terraforming idea. If you have your Bible or your phone, go ahead and pull up Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. That's where that first quote from Jesus was from, and this is where we're going to be hanging out today. So we'll be keep coming back to this passage because this is the core of Jesus's terraforming idea about hate. Now, I'm going to be using the message version of the Bible this morning. So if you're looking at it on your phone, maybe go ahead and switch to the message version or just open up the Bible app event where it has already been switched for you. Now, if you haven't read the message before, I just wanna give you a heads up, it might be a little jarring, um, but I'm doing this intentionally for two reasons. Number one, I think that reading this version helps knock us out of the like, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that before, sort of glossing over when it comes to scripture. And two, since the language is much more modern, it fits really well with the modern day poetic grit of Propaganda's rap lyrics, whose book was the inspiration for this series. All right, so everyone, you got your Bibles? Um, you're in Matthew 5, verse 43. If you're not, it's up on the screen. <laughs> so let's look at Jesus' terraforming idea. He said, you're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. So there's Jesus' grand terraforming idea. Love your enemies. So simple, but so bold. Good tagline, you know, motto for how stay is if Jesus was in Game of Thrones. Love your enemies. Now, I don't know if Twitter or the comments section of social media have heard of that one yet, but it's gonna be revolutionary. Let's terraform that platform, love your enemies. Now, I wanna pause here a second because I know that you guys have probably heard this before. Um, so the impact of this statement might be sliding into the, yeah, yeah, I know that category, I do that. But I wanna pull it out of that, yeah, yeah, I know that box, and re-examine the statement of Jesus um, because it's super impactful, especially in light of that last verse because Jesus is setting up something interesting here that really matters as we try to implement and live out this terraforming idea. Okay, so take a look back at Matthew 5. Um, old law, love your friend, hate your enemy, challenging that, love your enemies, let them bring out the best, not the worst. Someone gives you a hard time, respond to supplement to prayer for then. You are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. All right, what is Jesus setting up here? 
He emphasizes that this new way is working out of our true selves, which implies that there's another self or another way that we might be working out of. What else might we be working out of? Well, this other way is what propaganda calls empire. The empire is going to be our shorthand this morning for the love your friend, hate your enemy mentality, um, the status quo, the way that our world currently operates. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's what the scriptures often simply call the world. The empire is that other way of working that Jesus is hinting at in Matthew 5 that's in opposition to love your enemies. All right, so we're going to dive a little bit into empires. If you're familiar with any history or with Star Wars, you may recognize some of these three different strategies that empires use to conquer and take over a people the other. All right, number one is annihilate the other. This is the Hazen Blaze strategy. Rape, kill, burn, pillage, just destroy the people and start over with your own people. Annihilate the enemy, so then there's just friends. The Vikings were very fond of this one, if you remember them. But then the second strategy is appropriate the other. Rather than killing all of the people, you just appropriate all the power over the people. Take out the leaders, the rulers, put your friends in charge, and then institute systems to control and manage all of your enemies underneath. This is a big favorite of colonial empires. Or third, and this is the most subtle and sneaky strategy and probably also the most effective, which is assimilate the other. In assimilation, you create this monolithic culture by slowly erasing identities and eroding distinctions between people. Instead of destroying or controlling your enemies, you change your enemies' customs, habits, ideas, thoughts, and values until they reflect yours, thus morphing your enemies into friends. You can form their identity into your image. Now, one of the best examples of this assimilation strategy is in the book of Daniel. The current empire of that time, Babylon, conquered God's people, the Israelites, but instead of annihilating or appropriating them, King Nebuchadnezzar was a crafty dude, and he decided to assimilate the Israelites into the image of his empire. King Nebuchadnezzar brought all the best and brightest young Israelites to his Babylonian home, you know, because you can't teach an old dog new tricks, gotta get the new kids on the block. He fed them Babylonian food. He taught them the Babylonian language, which if you didn't know is Akkadian. He instructed them in Babylonian culture, laws, and norms. He gave them Babylonian jobs. He introduced them to Babylonian gods, and he bestowed upon them Babylonian names, erasure of anything that made them distinct or separate, anything that marked them as other. So instead of reflecting back Israelite, they reflected the image of the empire. Babylon. But our man Daniel, the main guy in the book of Daniel, coincidentally, refused to be assimilated. He lived and worked in the Babylonian Empire. He served the Babylonian king. He spoke Akkadian and was utmostly respectful of the differences between him and the Babylonians. But Daniel did not assimilate. Despite immense cultural and political pressure, he continued his distinct practice of praying to God three times a day, this fundamental habit that rooted him and grounded him in his God, the source of love and life. He knew who he was first. He maintained his core identity, a child of the one true God, which is why we know him as Daniel, 
because the Babylonians gave him the name Belteshazzar. Even though he lived and loved and moved in the empire, Daniel continued working out of his true self, even when in the empire. And he reflected a terraformed approach to life that images God. The empire seeks to assimilate us and to form us into the image of the empire. But Jesus is saying that the empire is not our true selves, that our true identities are separate and distinct from the empire that we live and move in. So what is this real true identity that we work out of? This is what 1 John 3 says about who we really are. What marvelous love the Father has extended to it. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. Children of God, made in the image of Christ, separate and distinct from the empire. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to, he being God. We are the children of God. That's who we really are. This is the true self that we work out of. And if we are children of God, it is God's image that we should be reflecting into the world. If we are working out of our true identity in Christ, we should not reflect the empire. Our world shouldn't recognize us. Our ideas should seem foreign or naive or a little bit silly because we aren't reflecting the empire back to itself anymore. We are refusing to assimilate. Well, sometimes it can be hard to figure out, okay, am I reflecting the empire or am I reflecting my true identity as a child of God? These things are difficult to suss out. So to help us distinguish where we kind of like fall on this spectrum, let's look in the mirror and check our reflection. What do we see reflected back to us? Okay, we're going to start with what the empire looks like. Well, Jesus said that the empire looks like love your friend, hate your enemy. Okay, that's pretty easy. Who here hates people? No one? That's awesome. I guess we're all good. We're not reflecting the empire at all. It is cool and woke to love everybody. I'm not even sure what woke means, but it seems to be the trendy word these days. The problem with the world is that those other people don't love everybody the way that I love everyone because I am very, very loving. I'm glad we all don't hate people and that we are also loving. But let's take a second look. I don't think that many of us would look in the mirror and say that we hate people. To quote the plain white tease, hate is a strong word, but I really, really, really don't like you. Author Sky Jathani helps us unpack the word hate by putting it on a spectrum of degrees, which makes it a little more relatable and easier to recognize when we look in the mirror. All right, so this is his fancy little diagram. You can see his cute little angry faces with fire. <laughs> but you can see on the x-axis, this is our degree of hate. And then on the y-axis is the emotional engagement that such hate takes. Um, so we're gonna start down here with like the least degree, which he calls annoyance, AKA irritation. This is like hate light. All right, new question. Have you ever been irritated with somebody? I have on a daily basis, usually my children, occasionally my husband, maybe someone in church, often someone on social media. Now, I don't like to acknowledge this about myself, um, but my annoyance and irritation is actually a form of hate. Ugh. Annoyance is definitely something that I feel towards people quite often. Perhaps I hate a little bit. 
Okay, so we're gonna move up the scale. Here we get to anger and a little bit of fire. <laughs> All right, anyone in here ever been angry at somebody? Yeah, me too. And Jesus speaks really, really strongly about anger. If you're still in Matthew 5, go ahead and hop back a couple of verses up to verse 21. And this is what Jesus says about anger. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Whew, that is intense. Guilty of murder. My anger for people is a form of hate. And Jesus is telling us that anger is not part of his way. Anger is the way of the empire. And let me tell you, the empire loves anger. It is its favorite color to wear out. Have you watched the news lately? Have you been on social media? Have you read an article or watched a TikTok? The empire loves being angry. When we're angry, we look a lot like the empire, not like Jesus. Okay, that moves us once more up the scale to rage. I feel like rage also feels uncomfortable and is not something that we like to say about ourselves. But if you change that and put like a little ouch in front of it, outrage, yeah, I've been outraged. Have you seen Papyrus or Comic Sans? Who is still doing this? Why? If seeing that does not give you like a nails on the chalkboard feeling, you might be dead inside. Outrage. Kill me now. Um, Sky Jathani jokes that outrage is the new fruit of the spirit for the digital generation. He says, it seems like our entire culture, including the church, is addicted to outrage. Anger has become the acceptable, even expected, sign of one's commitment to any cause. I sometimes feel that my credibility depends on my willingness to brandish my anger. In some Christian communities, anger is so ubiquitous, one might suspect it is a fruit of the Spirit. Why has it found such acceptance among us when Jesus warns so clearly of anger's toxicity to our soul? Now, perhaps you're feeling outraged by this message. Hopefully not. I'm not trying to enrage anyone. But there doesn't seem to be much room for anything less than outrage in our culture, especially for a good cause. Now, I'm not saying that there's not such a thing as righteous anger, because Jesus clearly demonstrated that in the temple with some table turning and some whipping. But I would hesitate to ever assume that my anger is as righteous as Jesus's. Unlike Jesus, I am fallible. Unlike Jesus, I make mistakes. Unlike Jesus, I am pretty self-interested. And unlike Jesus, I am not willing to die for the people that I am so righteously angry at. When we embrace outrage, we embrace the way of the empire. We reflect the voice and the currency of the empire where the loudest, angriest, most outraged voice is the most heard and the most important. But rage is hate. So that then leads us to the final degree of hate, which is contempt. Now this is how Sky Jathani defines contempt. Contempt seeks to diminish the inherent value of the other person. It views the other as subhuman, not even worthy of my anger. It excludes the other person from being worthy of care, thought, or dignity. Now it's not just Sky Jathani who thinks that contempt is perhaps the worst form of hate your enemies. 
If you're still in Matthew 5, um, Jesus moves right on from warning against anger to talking about contempt in the next few verses. He says, carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. Now, this might seem a little extreme to us as 21st century readers, and maybe a little disjointed from the, like, anger equals murder verse. Um, at least that seems to, like, connect. What is so bad about calling someone stupid? Well, it's not a nice word, <laughs> as I'm trying to teach my children. But the interior heart condition that Jesus is talking about here is contempt. And contempt brings us to the brink of hell. When you look at pejoratives like idiot or stupid, these words attempt to reduce the complexity of a child of God to one defining, dismissible adjective. And reducing people's humanity, excluding them from worth or dignity by painting the sum of their whole as idiot or stupid is contempt. It is hate for our enemies. All right, so let's take another honest look in the mirror. Who do you roll your eyes at and say, they're such idiots, or they're so stupid, or they're such bigots, racist, homophobes, hypocrites? Who do we hold contempt for in our hearts? That's who Jesus says we're hating. That's the hate that Jesus wants to terraform into love. Not many of us would look in the mirror and say that we hate someone. Like we said, hate is a strong word, but I really, really, really don't like you. But hate is annoyance. Hate is anger. Hate is outrage. Hate is contempt. And when we realize this, I don't know that any of us can say that we don't hate our enemies. Unfortunately, we may be reflecting a lot more of the empire in the mirror than we hoped we would. But good news, Jesus says that there's another way. This doesn't have to be the way that we look. Our true selves, our God-created selves, our children of the Father selves are our core identity, even if we live in the empire. We've been breathing this air and swimming in this hate for so long, it's like second nature, but it doesn't have to be the case. What other response is there? Now, our shorthand for the world's way of love your friend but hate your enemy is empire, but our shorthand for Jesus' way of love your enemies is kingdom. And this is what Jesus says about kingdom. My kingdom, said Jesus, doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews, but I am not that kind of king, not the world's kind of king. The world's kind of king operates with othering, selective treatment based on how similar you are to me. And if you don't look like me, I'll wipe you out, get power over you, or change you until you look like me. But Jesus says that he is a different kind of king than the world knows. And if we are image bearers of the king, we can act differently than the empire. We can reflect God back to the world. So if we look in the mirror, how do we know if we're reflecting the kingdom? All right, Matthew 5, go ahead and drop back down to verse 45, and we're going to see how the king acts. Jesus says, this is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? 
Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way that God lives towards you. This is what the kingdom looks like, giving our best to everyone regardless. What a different way to live. What a way to flip the script. What a way to terraform the hate. Love everyone regardless. Don't just love the people that you like, the people who look the way that you do, that think the way that you do, that live the way that you do, because that's what the empire does. It loves itself and only what is like itself. But we are made in the image of God. We are kingdom subjects, so we reflect the king, and the king doesn't define your lovability by how closely you resemble him. You are inherently worthy, inherently valuable, inherently lovable, no matter what. If we want to terraform our world, the answer to hate is not more hate. Propaganda says it this way, the antidote to empire isn't another empire, it's kingdom. And the kingdom way is not about anger, outrage, contempt, and hate for the other, but about giving our best to the other regardless. It's about love for your enemies. All right, so how do we actually love our enemies practically? What does that look like so that we can check our reflections in the mirror and make sure that we're imaging the kingdom instead of empire? Well, before we talked about these three strategies of the empire, it was annihilate the other, appropriate the other, and assimilate the other. All of those are hate-based, but there are three strategies of the kingdom that we can use to help terraform our hate into love. All right, here's the first one. We need to individualize the other. Now, why is this important? Um, because it's easy to hate a nameless blob, <clears throat> an amorphous, faceless entity. Do I feel that bad about hating whoever it was that made that PowerPoint presentation in Comic Sans? Not really. I don't know them, but I know enough about them to know that they have bad taste in fonts and probably are worth my contempt. But when Jesus talks about love, it isn't in this like amorphous, nameless way. In a conversation that Jesus had with the cultural elite of his time, they asked what the greatest commandment in the Bible was. And Jesus tells them and us that the rule that sums up all the law and all the prophets, the whole Bible, that giant thick book that you have on your shelf is first love God, then love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, this is how Jesus talks about loving. As you love yourself. And this yourself here is the key word. Yourself is an individual. Yourself has a name. Yourself has a favorite flavor of ice cream, a favorite baseball team, probably the Cubs, and grew up in El Paso, Texas. Yourself has a history and a story with complex things that have happened to you. Yourself has interesting and sometimes conflicting ideas. Yourself has compounded motives, layered loves, varied fears, unique circumstances. Yourself is someone's son or daughter. Yourself is someone's friend. Yourself is someone's lover. 
Yourself watches Avatar and YouTube videos and has dreams and aspirations. Yourself is a complicated, cool, and sometimes frustrating individual. This is how we love, at the level of the individual. We have to love others in the full complexity and knowledge that we love ourselves. And you wouldn't want to be reduced to an epithet of stupid because of one thing that you believe. You wouldn't want to be hated based on one sliver of your story. You wouldn't, be, one, you wouldn't want to be condemned or dismissed because you chose Comic Sans from the font menu. No human can be reduced to that. Propaganda writes, I suggest a redo because all we do is see through. We see through people and only one aspect of their humanity. Let the stories and the idiosyncrasies and the layers snag our vision before we can see through somebody and miss the complexity of who they are. Practice individualizing the enemy that you hate. Ask that misogynist what his favorite TV show is. Ask that crazy liberal how they celebrated birthdays growing up. Ask that bigot the names of their children and what they love about each child. Ask that irritating, annoying person across from you which character they would be in Avatar and why. And if they haven't seen it, maybe offer to marathon it with them. Maybe you get coffee with them. You learn to see their inherent dignity as God's beloved, a person that Jesus died for. Maybe you refollow that person that you hit on social media who thinks so differently from you and acts so differently from you, and then send them a message and see how they're doing. Maybe you intentionally develop a friendship with someone from the other, the group that enrages you or that you dismiss contemptuously. When we individualize people, we love them the way that we love ourselves, and it makes them a lot harder to hate. So that's our first strategy. And the second one um, is that the kingdom empathizes with the other. Propaganda writes these lines in his poem, People. This is meant to disrupt othering. Look across the table in their eyes and see yourself suffering. Now, we're inherently limited by our own experiences with the world, but empathy is the practice of putting yourself into the life and circumstances and feelings of another person. Propaganda suggests a couple really great ways um, to do this, that you can practically put yourself into the shoes of someone who lives life very differently than you. It helps you to imagine a life less privileged than your own, and you'll quickly find solidarity with the poor, the marginalized, and the struggling. So his first idea, and <laughs> like blowing your mind, but spend a week not using your own internet. Ah, I know. We often take the internet for granted, but not everyone has access to it. So to stretch yourself, plan a whole week, plan your school assignments, your Netflix binging, your Instagram scrolling around having to go to a public place where you can access internet. Um, second idea, spend a week not using your own personal transportation. And this includes things like Uber or Lyft. Use public transportation or bike or walk and see how that changes the rhythm of your days and who you come into contact with. Or third, spend a week without your own washer and dryer. Now Ryan and I have inadvertently been thrown into this category for the, this past month um, since our washer and dryer broke. Ryan is like industriously trying to fix these things and he's amazing, but they're still broken. <laughs> 
Um, but it has been an eye-opening experience to pack up all of my dirty laundry and suitcases, pull out cash, change my cash into quarters, figure out how to operate all the different machines, avoid the one that eats your quarters, and fold my laundry in front of a bunch of strangers. But who am I kidding? I don't fold my laundry. <laughs> um, going to the laundromat is time intensive. I can't be productive or get other stuff done while I'm at the laundromat. I have small children who want to run around it. Um, it is a really eye-opening experience. Um, and we've also had super kind friends who've done loads of laundry for us. And it is humbling to have to accept help and to know that your friend is washing your underwear. Propaganda re recommends this while you're trying out one of these three things. It says, keep a journal about who you see throughout the day and the emotions that arise. These exercises might help put you in someone else's shoe, which will inform how you cast votes or lobby for things that make someone else's life better, not just your own. It also might just cause you to love your neighbor. What ways can you intentionally walk in someone else's shoes so that your empathy and respect and understanding of different ways of life can grow? All right, and the last strategy of the kingdom is to intercede for the other. Now, intercede um, can have multiple meanings, but in the church historically, it has been used to refer to intercessory prayer, which is basically just praying for another person. Part of the beauty of being God's children is that we don't have to try and terraform on our own. If we're honest, our ability um, is too weak to terraform hate into love. There's a reason that it is easy for kids to simply punch back when someone hits them instead of turning the other cheek. But in prayer, we allow God's agape love to move through us and shape our own hearts and eyes. Look back at what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44. He said, I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. When we make an enemy, when anger and outrage or contempt bubbles up inside of us, turn to prayer and invite God into the hate that you are wrestling with and then intercede for this other that you are tempted to bring out the worst for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, in intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. Prayer for the enemy, for the other, for the one that irritates, annoys, irks, and even outrages us, invites God into the terraforming process of our hearts, and it slowly morphs our empire instincts in the kingdom love. So with these three strategies of the kingdom, individualizing the other, empathizing with the other, and interceding for the other, we can slowly begin to terraform our reflections. Rather than being angry, outraged, contemptuous people who perpetuate the same cycles of othering and noxiousness that our empire world produces, we can work out of our true selves. We can begin by practice and prayer and humility to reflect our King and His great graciousness and generosity to all of us, regardless. We can begin to terraform our hate into love. Now I wanna close with a poem from Propaganda that I think captures the prayer that I wanna pray over my hate. Um, here's what he says. Help me feel helpless 
to see my neediness as a gift which transforms me to advocate. Help me see me and even the eyes of my enemies. Since the best of us that ever lived was marked by tenderness, remind me they are me. Help me to know too much to be okay and not enough to be at peace. Help me love hard and fast and deep and with no need for qualifiers. And thus the gentleness of words and touch is precisely because I feel too much. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Um, and we want to reflect you back into the world, Lord. Our hearts are dying as we breathe in pain and exhale hate. Um, and it just makes the world feel awful, Lord. Please help us to terraform our hearts, our eyes, the way that we see people and interact with people and the way that you see them, God, as people we're dying for. Whoever our other is, Lord, please help us to be honest about that. The people that we hold contempt for in our hearts, the people that enrage us or that annoy us, Help us to be honest with um, the parts of us that reflect the empire, God, and then to surrender those to you and through prayer and connection with you to learn to love the way that you do, to give our best to everyone regardless. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much, even when we were your enemies and paving the way of how we can do this too. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.